welcome back to It's Not About the Bunny, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Brian. And I'm Caroline. And we're here to talk about episode eight. Which I thought was a good episode. Yes, I agree. Oh, and it's season two. It's season two. Yes. Just to be clear. Although, what are you doing dropping in in the middle of a podcast? Right. It's not professional. <laughs> um, and yes, so... We just had episode seven of season two, which was the big reveal. Mm -hmm. And so now we're starting to see some of the fallout of that. And this episode is really all about Leland. It's what Mm -hmm. Leland is doing after uh, he kills Maddie and how he's dealing with that psychologically. And the eeriest thing about it is he seems pretty happy. Yes, uh, this... This is the first episode that we're watching where we know for sure, mm-hmm. if we're watching it for the first time, we know yes. that Leland is the killer. So it's not giving us any new information, but it's um, just letting us sit with that and observe Leland with that knowledge. And now all of his actions, which are um, in some ways similar to things that he's been doing the whole time, they take on a new meaning. Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, I want to get some general notes out of the way. This was directed by Caleb Chanel. Mm-hmm. And I think he does a great job. It feels very Lynchian. Yes, I agree. It definitely feels like a part two of right. um, from the previous episode. They, they feel like they're making up one complete whole. Yes, we have... Lots of dissolved transitions, Mm -hmm. dissolves to trees, dissolves to the waterfall, some slow dollies. Yes. I think there's a little handheld. Right. There There are also a couple of um, sort of symmetrical centered images, which isn't very Lynchian, um, but is certainly visually interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One question that I have is how involved Lynch was at this point, because Mm -hmm. in some interviews, he almost makes it sound like he checked out after after the killer was revealed, which would have been the last episode. Yes. But episode eight and episode nine, I think are both very solid and have a lot of Lynchian moments in them Mm -hmm. that make it hard to believe that he wasn't involved. Yeah, at least a little bit. Yeah, so we'll get to that, but... Uh, let's talk about the opening scene. Okay. Uh, this is very, very scary. Yeah. In fact, we're recording on Halloween. Yes. Happy Halloween. <clears throat> um, and, uh, when, when does this episode come out? Today. Today. Okay. <laughs> so it's, 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 uh, appropriate that this is a scary episode, but, mm-hmm. um, this is something I didn't remember that the, the very first scene is a scene of the Palmer house from the outside mm-hmm. with Maddie screaming. It's yes. like, we get to see, we get to relive that scene just for a few seconds from the outside. Yes. But yeah, I think that's interesting in a number of ways because it implies that what happened to Maddie is kind of still happening, even though now it's at least a few hours in the past, probably like half a day. Yeah. Um, because we know she was killed at night and now it's daytime. But the house itself is 
it's infected with what happened there. It's haunted. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. That's a good point because the, the, the series never really, at least in the first two seasons, doesn't play with time and, and except in dreams, I guess, but the narrative is always moving forward. It yes. doesn't, it doesn't switch it up on you and, and show you things that happened in the past other than through video or, right. or uh, cassette tapes or whatever. Yeah. Um, there's the occasional flashback, but it, it's always clear that that's what's happening, that it's a memory. Right. Yeah. So this is an interesting scene from that perspective. It does, it is jarring. Mm -hmm. It makes it feel, yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe a little supernatural. But also I think it, it kind of underlines all of the themes that we talked about in the last two episodes that mm -hmm. we've done um, about the, the house, the boundaries of the house as allowing this crime to take place. Yes. And it's very eerie because um, you, got, you can't actually hear the screams from, from outside of the house, yeah. but they're very faint. And you can see how isolated the house is yes. from the houses next to it. Mm -hmm. And so it, I think it. And how far it is from the street. It kind of underlines how isolated Maddie was. Mm -hmm. And that really, yeah, her screams were to no avail because uh, really there's probably no way anyone would have heard. No, it was fully a private event. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So then we we get the next morning, and uh, Leland is. Well, actually, we get Laura's portrait, very mm -hmm. poignant. Yes, and I think those are real pictures of um, Cheryl Lee as a little girl. Yeah, I noticed some of the other photos next mm -hmm. to that uh, famous one um, of her. Yeah, younger. Yeah. Very cute and. And then we have Leland hitting some golf balls in his house. Yes. Completely carefree. Yes. Yes. It's a very interesting performance by Ray Wise pretty much all throughout. Um, because now that we know what's going on, he does seem to us to be very carefree, but he's doing a lot of the erratic things that he was doing, <clears throat> you know, in season one and in the beginning of season two, that seemed at the, that time to be a result of really deep pain. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how different it seems now. Yeah, I think in the past we debated whether, like, <clears throat> whether all of the dancing and singing was Bob. And I feel right. like this episode tends to support that idea mm -hmm. to, as much as you can actually separate them. Yeah, and you see, that's the thing is that I don't know how much you can separate them because we know Bob has been a part of Leland for basically his entire life. He yeah. first entered into him or became a part of him when Leland was a child. And, and so at least for the people in Twin Peaks who know him and who are friends with him and are married to him, they've never known any other version of Leland. That's a good point. And that, that makes it odd that, right, all of this behavior is strange to them. Mm -hmm. So there, and we've talked about, yeah, like the, there was some kind of turmoil. Yeah. Um, and that he was, he's, he has generally been more normal in the mm -hmm. last couple of episodes. Right. And that made sense that in a way Bob 
had taken over again. Mm -hmm. um, but this kind of complicates that because now he's he's acting, he's still acting kind of strange. Yeah. But I think a lot of that is just driven by the desire to make to um, to make the audience uncomfortable because sure. it's we just saw him kill someone, so now if he acts a little strange, it's very chilling for us to watch. But it is it is interesting uh, to try to make it cohere. I think it's almost like there was some kind of equilibrium mm -hmm. prior to Laura's death, mm -hmm. and now it's out of whack. Yes, I think since Laura's death, what is human in Leland and the part of Leland that is Bob, I guess you can say, have kind of been battling for control. Right. And I think during season one, probably up until the moment when he kills Jacques, I think it's the human part of Leland that is basically dominant. It's mm -hmm. just that part of him is very weak and right. um, isn't always dominant and is um, so disgusted with what he did and with the subsequent loss. He's so horrified and broken by it that that human part of Leland is barely even a person. And so when Bob takes over again, I think a lot of people probably thought, oh, it's it's the good old Leland again, but mm -hmm. it's it's not the real him. It's yeah. Right. He's still dancing and singing, mm -hmm. but he's not crying while he's doing it. Right. Um, he's very Joker-like. Mm -hmm. He's fully Joker-fied. Right. Uh, to the point where I wondered whether there was some kind of, uh, maybe not conscious, uh, uh, influence of the Batman, Tim Burton's The Jack Nicholson Joker. Joker. I think 1989. I think that's maybe in there a little bit. I think also the film The Man Who Laughs yeah. with um, Conrad Veidt, which was a big influence on Burton's Batman and his right. portrayal of the Joker, and also like Alan Moore's portrayal of the Joker, which influenced Tim Burton. Right. I think that is in Ray Wise's performance too. Yeah. Um, it's hard yeah. to say how conscious it is because I don't know if they told him, hey, do. Right. Do this, uh -huh. but um, I just wonder if it was sort of in the zeitgeist sure. at that time. Yeah, the movie it was... had come out a few years earlier. Right. It was a very recent movie. Um, and when in earlier scenes, when when Leland is crying while dancing, it's a little more Lynchian in the the complexity of the tone. Whereas here, where he's just kind of gleefully mm -hmm. dancing with his cane or what does he have I, I, I think it's his golf club his golf club yes um it's a little more uh yeah it's it's he's he's the joker he's mm -hmm. he's uh <laughs> gleefully um he's delighting in in sowing chaos right he's and, an agent of chaos and for bob not so much for leland it's it's great either way because either he's going to get away with it which it looks like it at this point and it looks like Ben Horn is going to be blamed for it and for everything. Um, in which case Bob could continue to wreak mayhem in various ways through Leland. Yeah. Or Leland is going to be caught and his life destroyed and his family's life further destroyed. 
Um, and either way works out for Bob. Bob is going to be fine. Yes, but it's interesting that he was apparently so careful for so long. Mm-hmm. And now he's not, he's being reckless, I think. Yeah. Which again goes to the idea that there's some, something is out of whack, that there was an equilibrium he was able, that Leland and Bob had that allowed them to live without suspicion for decades. Right. And now it's all, it's, it's out of balance and Bob is too much in control almost. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's, drawing attention to himself by driving erratically, for example. Well, it's it sort of speaks to the crime that Leland with Bob was committing prior to Lara's murder, which was just raping her for years and years and years. And um, that's a crime that can totally exist in equilibrium with yeah. a stable society. It happens all the time. Parents abuse their children too often, all the time. And it's something that Leland could do and still go to work and still pay his taxes and still, you know, go to his golf club and be a lawyer. And Laura could still go to school and do Meals on Wheels and be really miserable and really traumatized and act out in all kinds of ways because of that trauma. But um, it wasn't socially destructive to the extent that her murder was. And once that happened, that that started things to unravel. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <clears throat> now Bob doesn't have that constant source of suffering to feed on. Exactly. And he maybe he's getting restless. Yeah. And, and he, maybe... has, he has to up the ante. Like he has to yeah. increase his dose. Right. He's jonesing. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe he also kind of realizes that, yeah, the, the jig is up. Like, um, that, that Leland is going to get caught sooner or later, yeah. and so he just has to enjoy it while he can. And we've also talked about the possibility that there was a special interest in Laura. Mm-hmm. And now that Laura's dead, maybe right. in a way, Bob doesn't have a purpose uh-huh. here. Yeah. But at any rate, um, he, is, he is here for now, and he is really creepy mm-hmm. uh it's also creepy how sarah is acting yes and she seems upset but also isn't acting like anything's wrong well i think this is something we learn more about in fire walk with me that this pattern of leland bob drugging sarah and then doing something while she's passed out and then acting like everything's normal. That's that's something that had been happening for years. That's how he was able to get away with abusing Lara. And I think Sarah, some part of her knows when that's happened. Mm-hmm. I really think so. It's, um, she doesn't necessarily know what she knows, but she knows that something's happened. Like, you know when you've been drugged the yeah. next day. You, yeah. Your brain is foggy. You feel lethargic. You you know something happened, and she knows. Yeah, but she's going on. Yeah, as if everything was normal. And mm-hmm. Asking if he signed them up for some dinner club. at the club. Dinner yeah. at the club. Yeah, it's all very mundane and suburban. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um. 
you really get the sense that Sarah, at least on some level, thinks, okay, we're starting to get our lives back to normal now. You know? Yeah. It, uh, it hasn't been that long since their daughter died. Right. But um, now Maddie is gone. Now they're going to try to live their lives as well as they can. Mm-hmm. She's, that's kind of the tragic thing. Sarah is starting to kind of make her peace with where her life is. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and she doesn't. I don't think she does. I don't think she necessarily knows that Maddie has died. No, of Uh, course she doesn't. She thinks what um, Leland tells Donna and James that Maddie has left. Right, Leland lies to Donna and James. There was a line in there that kind of comes and goes, but Mm -hmm. it. I think that they said they were supposed to come over the night before. Yeah, which. This kind of makes it more tragic. Yeah. That they just decided not to because right. um, they were, I guess, uh, reconciling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if, I don't know how, who knows what the timing was go- going to be, but. Well, we know they were at One Eye, not One Eye Jacks, um, yes. the Roadhouse um, when Maddie was killed. They yeah. have that sense, or at least Donna does, that something happened. Yeah, like maybe if they had come over to see her, that, that wouldn't have happened. I don't know. Yeah, and it is <clears throat> it is tragic, and it, it points to the role Maddie played in everybody's life when she was in Twin Peaks, which is that everybody used her the same yeah. way they used Lara. They had something they needed her for and now that they've decided they don't need that anymore or they've moved past it or something then she doesn't really matter to them as herself she matters to them as a lara substitute and once they don't need a lara substitute anymore yeah yeah but to be fair they thought that they could see her the next day sure and then they find out that she left early Mm -hmm. which is a little weird yeah and Donna sees the golf balls and laughs. Yeah. She thinks this is just typical Leland being right, weird. Right, right. And, you know, he's he's crazy now, so. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, and uh, Leland uh, takes his his golf bag mm-hmm. with Maddie inside, and he goes, goes for a ride. Yes. Goes for a drive. Mm-hmm. In a convertible, I don't know that we've seen this I car before. I don't think before. we've seen that car before. It's I don't know why it's surprising to me that Leland drives it. Probably shouldn't be. It's kind of interesting that, I mean, we knew he was like a lawyer, but also maybe the big lawyer in town. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, they're kind of leaning into Leland the rich asshole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like the guy in a convertible going to play golf. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is interesting. I mean, I don't know. I th- it feels right, mm-hmm. um, but I also wonder if it's a bit unfair. Like, why wasn't he that way the whole time? I don't know. Well, I think there have been hints. You know, there's a reason that he works for Ben Horn, right? Yeah, and that Ben Horn trusted him so much. And it's it's interesting, isn't it, that they lean into that characterization of Leland as a rich asshole in the same episode when Ben Horn gets a lot of humanizing moments. That's true. Yeah. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I don't know if we want to just uh, talk about all the Leland moments in this episode. <laughs> he's uh, he's so he's so good. Ray Wise is so good. 
yeah, we see him next at the Great Northern. He's dancing around and mm-hmm. Cooper sees him and immediately it's hard to say what Cooper's thinking. But Cooper Well, when when does this happen that um what's his face? That, that's later. That Philip Gerard sees him. Yeah, later. that is later. But Cooper just seems to think something is off. And I don't know if this is what he's thinking, but mm-hmm. He sees Leland at the Great Northern, yeah, which is where Bob was supposed to be. Right. And he remembers, oh, yeah, that's another person mm-hmm. that might have been at the Great Northern yeah. at that time. Yeah. I don't know if that's what he's thinking, because um, he doesn't really do much to follow up on this, but the, I guess he just has some kind of hunch that something is wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think... I think, yeah, Cooper does have that hunch. His instincts are pointing him towards Leland, I think, but he doesn't want to believe it. He's never wanted to think that something like that could happen. Yes. And Leland is acting really strange here. Mm. I mean, he's he's dancing and, and smiling, and uh, the guests of the Great Northern seem to love it. Yeah. It's kind of weird. Uh-huh. He's, not, he's not even singing. He's just sort of like doing a little routine. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, yeah, the, he's the way he's talking to to uh, Harry and Dale is very strange, mm-hmm. and he's almost like an excited kid. Yes, and he seems he are, he's already seems a little unhinged to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, his, yeah. yeah, his reaction when he's told that Ben has been arrested is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, in what way? Well, because it. You know, he starts off almost weeping, yes. and then it turns into a laugh, and it's hard to tell. <sighs> Is he trying to cry? And then he just can't stop laughing because he's so amused and happy that more chaos has been sown. <laughs> Is Leland, the real Leland, actually upset? I don't think so. I... I... The, it, it seems like a fake reaction. Yeah. And that's an interesting quality that Ray Wise brings mm-hmm. to his performance is that sometimes in the past, his reactions were so over the top that they mm-hmm. almost seemed like they could be fake. But I think that he, when he was really like in the early episodes, like crying uh, because of what happened to Laura, mm-hmm. I think even though it was very big, he still... Was yeah. able to get the um, the like a real emotion through. Absolutely, absolutely. Whereas here, there's just there's just the fake quality. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Um. Because he's sort of crying, but it's a, I mean, it's a dry cry. He's not yeah, actually. Yeah, it's. I don't it, think there are tears. It almost seems like he's practicing. Yeah. Like he knows. Oh, I'm gonna have to act sad later that my boss murdered my daughter. Sort of, but. Um, he's not actually upset about it. Yeah, well, it's a performance for Cooper, and then he walks away mm-hmm. upset yeah. and goes off into a corner. Mm-hmm. And then that's where we, where the audience sees him. Yeah. But Cooper doesn't. Right. And but it's, it's not like a, a split-second reversal. Like, it's, it it's, is a little gradual. No, it's, well, it's creepy. Yeah. Yeah, th- this weird crying into laughing Mm -hmm. and then dancing again (laughs) a kind of maniacal laugh yes that's where it felt like he was the joker 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, yeah. But it's very effective and, and very sure. creepy. He's very, I mean, he's very, he's sort of doing, um, uh, he's, he's Bob, basically. Yeah, yeah. But Cooper comes to uh, talk to him again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it's unclear what Cooper's thinking because I think he, he doesn't, he just asks him, like, if you remember anything, let us know, or something like that. Right. It's, he doesn't have anything important to say. Mm-hmm. But I think he just wanted to follow Leland and see what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they have a brief moment and Cooper leaves. And then we still see uh, Cooper being very Bob. And, not or Cooper, Leland, Leland being yeah. very Bob. <laughs> and he's like, uh, I want, there's like a moment where he looks at the camera or almost looks Mm-hmm. Into the camera. That's very creepy. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then we don't see him again until he's he's uh, driving erratically mm-hmm. and uh, almost uh, almost hits Truman and Cooper. Right. So they pull him over. Mm-hmm. There's some more great acting by Ray Wise. Yeah. And, and it's he's it's so reckless. It's almost like he wants. To get caught. Yeah, well, they're about to leave him. Mm-hmm. And then he calls Cooper over to look at his golf clubs. Yeah, when he knows that Maddie is in the bag. Yeah, we see her body in mm-hmm. the bag. Cooper so, almost catches him. So he's really, yeah, this is Bob flaunting, mm-hmm. you know, doing a, a Zodiac killer. Yeah. Or, you know, Mr. Policeman, you had all the clues. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, what was that movie? Snow, the snowman. Snowball, Snowman, yeah. Yeah, he's he's taunting, mm-hmm. taunting them. Right. Uh, but there's also a moment where he's behind Cooper with the golf club, and it looks mm-hmm. like he's about to kill kill him. Yeah. Like it's really frightening. Uh huh. Yeah, and it it's frightening because it shows really how chaotic Bob Leland can be. Um, because so many of the crimes that he's committed so far have been pretty, um, pre-planned, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they really aren't crimes of passion. That's what's so frightening about them. Like he yeah. at least does some preparation, whereas, yeah, just deciding he's going to swing a golf club at Cooper's head in the middle of the street, in the middle of the day with plenty of people around to see it. That really shows you that this guy is capable yeah. of anything. He's gone. Well, we, I think it's ambiguous as to whether he was going to do that. Sure. It, He's toying with it the It passes idea. so quickly, mm-hmm. and I love that. Yeah. I think most shows would have drawn it out a little more sure. with some kind of music cue. Uh-huh. There's no music cue. It's And it's the timing is interesting because it's like right... Uh, you see it like right after a cut... Mm-hmm. And then immediately Truman calls to Cooper and is like, "We got, you know, we found Philip Gerard." Yeah. And Cooper's like, "All right, bye." And uh-huh. it happens quickly and without any fanfare. Right. You see, you're like, "What? Wait, is he gonna do that?" Right. Um, because, and partially, it's the look on Ray Wise's face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's almost more like the uncertainty, the cha- it's chaotic. Not just because of the possibility, like 
it's not just that he is thinking about it, but mm -hmm. that you're not even sure what his game is. Right. Like, could he do that? Right. And he's equally happy whether he does it or not. Yes. I think that that's very true. Mm -hmm. So I want to just say a little bit, the song that we hear Leland sing this episode in particular when he's in the car driving, you know, erratically all over the road is Surrey with a fringe on top from Oklahoma, which, and I know a lot of the songs that Leland sings, they're chosen probably because the show could get the rights to them. And, um, because they create a kind of dissonance of, you know, these goofy, uh, happy show tunes versus this creepy undercurrent. But I think something from Oklahoma is a really interesting choice there for a couple of reasons. It's, I think Oklahoma is a deceptively simple play and there's a reason why it remains so popular. It's because it is a story about a young woman coming to terms with her sexuality and her desires and her darker desires and learning to sort of place them within a normal social context where she can grow up and get married. Mm. And there's always this other darker side of her that's pulling her away from that future. And that young woman in Oklahoma is named Laurie, which I think is also interesting. But the whole play, it's about this kind of tension between um, social cohesion and forward progress and this more elemental, um, libidinal, chaotic darkness mm -hmm. that is also there in the same place. That's why the whole point <clears throat> of the play, it ends with Oklahoma becoming a state instead of a territory. It's um, and it also ends with a marriage and we're supposed to sort of understand those as kind of the same process of moving away from this kind of chaotic, sexual, dark <clears throat> side where anything can happen and where mm -hmm. people can hurt each other very badly to a world where people marry the right person and they have children and they vote and they hold property and they're part of America. Right. And I think that tension is very much in Twin Peaks too. We've talked about that a lot. And so Surrey with a fringe on top, it's early in Oklahoma. It's a very innocent song. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's like a Bruce Springsteen song. It's trying to impress a girl with how sweet your ride is. Um, <laughs> and it's about young love and um, being happy with nature and with uh, your surroundings. It's, it's a great musical, but it's, um, in the context of the play and in the context of this show, it's always about how that is just a part of life. It's not all of life. There's also this other side that is mm -hmm. scary and um, seductive at the same time. <clears throat> yeah, that's a good point. And in Oklahoma, it's almost like a movement toward order. Yeah from chaos. Yeah. Whereas in Twin Peaks, it's uh, taking those same themes mm -hmm. and treating them in a more complex way because sure. it's showing them as superimposed mm -hmm. and containing each other. Yes, absolutely. So you're never, you're never actually leaving chaos behind. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the chaos is like in the DNA of order. Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. In Twin Peaks, which is why the innocent song is saying is sung by the killer. Right. Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah, and it also, that's, I'm glad you brought this up because uh, I wasn't sure what to make of it. I thought that using a, a show tune and a popular one like Oklahoma was the less Lynchian choice mm -hmm. than some of the previous songs that sure. everyone has sung, but it, it does make a lot of sense. And it, it also kind of uh, reminds us that Twin Peaks is a Western. Yeah, absolutely. Or at, at any rate, a show about the West. Yeah, I mean, Twin Peaks is a frontier town yeah. as much as any town in any Western, you know, <clears throat> that like the fact that they don't have a, a courthouse, they have to have trials and um, right. hearings in the roadhouse. They have a traveling judge who can't be there all year round, but just goes from place to place. You know, they have the local sheriff who's honest and upright and wants to do the right thing, but has the complicated relationship with the bad girl. And it's, yeah, I mean, this show loves its Western tropes. Yeah, so mm -hmm. it's like, um, once you have established a state mm -hmm. <laughs> where there was none, yeah. uh, there's still all these layers. Right. There's still the layer of the, the, the Old West, the conquering, the, mm -hmm. the bloodthirsty, uh, you know, settling, yeah. and the cowboys and frontier justice. That's like still there somehow. Mm -hmm. And then the older layers of, um, which show up as essentially a kind of guilty conscience, right? Um, and a, a sense of of some something dark that you've made a deal with, mm -hmm. uh, but that you that you also mistake for like the the unknown that you had conquered, yeah, right? Uh, in order to establish order, but that actually was part of the conquering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all there. Right. And it's a process that never ends because the conquering forces, which is industry of Twin Peaks, is also something that could be conquered by someone like Ben Horn, who basically yeah. wants to turn the town into a commodified um, tourist playground. Yeah, yeah. But even he is a recurrence because, mm -hmm. you know, every, every Old West town had a Ben Horn. No, exactly. It existed because there was someone there trying to make a buck yeah. uh, who didn't care mm -hmm. what he, who he had to hurt. Right, yeah. Or who he had to cheat or whatever. Mm -hmm. Ben Horn in the 1900s absolutely would have been the head of the nonpartisan anti-Chinese league. Yeah, and he's also the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of Ben Horn, that's a great transition. We gotta talk about Ben and Jerry. Yeah. Uh, you you were right to say earlier that we're getting, we're starting to sympathize with Ben, mm -hmm. who is such an asshole, or even kind of monstrous. Yes. For most of the series up to this point. Mm -hmm. But um, now, yeah, we know that he's not the killer. No. So he's the unfairly accused, and immediately we start to sympathize with him. All right. right. Yeah, no, I do too. And I think, I think we're meant to, like, I think the deck, the deck is being stacked. Yeah. Uh, although he's not doing himself any favors. No. <laughs> <laughs> he's still like uh, a yeah. petty child uh -huh. who is not used to being treated this way. Right. But uh, he, he uh, enlists his brother to mm -hmm. be his lawyer. Apparently yeah. Jerry is a lawyer. Yeah. I think I think we knew that, but it, it's pretty funny that um, 
he basically goes to his brother, the lawyer, when he's desperate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, normally it would be Leland, but mm-hmm. Leland is also uh, one is uh, accused of murder. So, so it's yeah hard to defend somebody of a murder charge when you're accused of murder. But then that also begs the question of like why? No, not begs the question. Raises the question of why he wanted Leland to do any legal work for him at all after he was charged with murder. Yeah, I don't know. I guess if it's behind the scenes, it's not. It's not such a big deal to just get advice. Sure. It's different when you're trying to persuade a jury that you didn't commit a murder and you're, and everyone in the jury knows that your attorney has also been, has been accused, accused of, murder. of a murder. Yeah, true, true. It's not a good look. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, um, and uh, it's kind of a touching scene mm-hmm. between Ben and Jerry. We see them as real people yeah. and not as cartoons. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are really there for each other. Yeah. And there's this wonderful scene that always stuck with me. Yeah. Where they remember being kids. Mm-hmm. In bunk beds. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because the, the jail cell has bunk beds. Right. Jerry says, oh, bunk beds. Uh-huh. And I remember our, our first room. Yeah. And there's this great scene, which seems so Lynchian. This is why I think Lynch, did, you know, must have been involved in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, where they remember that their babysitter would come yeah, and dance with a flashlight for them. And it's a beautiful little scene that doesn't have anything to do with the plot. Yeah, but it's um it's very bittersweet because yes. it shows how far they've come from being those innocent children who could be dazzled by something right. like that that they didn't have to pay for and that was very simple and yeah um really just done for them out of affection yeah no that that's a good point that's that's really what the scene is about mm-hmm. from a narrative perspective uh it's again showing us the human side of these characters yeah and jerry says lord what's become of us? yeah yeah as they're in the jail cell mm-hmm. uh, it's very touching but the scene itself is is really interesting the, the because the the babysitter mm-hmm. was apparently david fincher's sister oh interesting i didn't realize that yeah hmm. um and she is uh, the way it's it's lit is you only see her in silhouette mm-hmm. there's just a very little bit of light um you know lynch lynch always uh is is one to uh, explore the possibilities of limited lights, filming with limited light. Yeah. Um, which a lot of directors shy away from. Mm-hmm. Of course, Caleb e. Chanel was was uh, the director here. Yes. So I don't I don't know if if he was just feeling that inspiration or influence from Lynch mm-hmm. in general, or if this was an idea that Lynch had come up with. Sure, I don't know. But um, it's very beautiful because you just have a silhouette and also the. The way it's filmed is, uh, it looks like it's uh, a low frame rate. Yeah. Um, or is it a high frame rate? I don't know. It li- the way it looks, it's almost it's choppy. Mm-hmm. Almost like a stop motion yeah. look. Yeah, right. But it sort of increases your sense of the fact that this is a memory. Yes. Um, it's a literal flashback. They're flashing back to it. It's it's like they're seeing it in the jail cell. So it's a little distorted. 
Um, yeah. It's a little out of focus. It's a little choppy. Yeah. And I love that it's, it's, um, I think that they are old enough because we see, we see them in mm -hmm. this flashback. Yeah. I feel like they're old enough that it is sort of, there's something erotic about it. Like they're old enough yeah. that they might have a crush on the babysitter. Or sure. Whatever. Absolutely. Even um, though she was probably only a few years older than them. It was, yeah. it was that age where your babysitter seems like a grown up to you, even though she's probably maybe five years older than you at most. Yeah. But it's also so innocent. Mm -hmm. It's also just, yeah. Like you said, the innocence of seeing seeing this light this dance and being mm -hmm. dazzled by it yeah. in a very pure way like yeah. it's just amazing even though it's simple and not mm -hmm. there's nothing unexplained about it it's just right. it's trend uh it's hypnotic transfixing mm -hmm. um and in a way i think a lot of twin peaks is about maybe this desire to to have innocence and the erotic coincide yes and it never does right well and it that's also something that ben horn has been trying to in different ways buy yes and own everywhere that's that's what he wants twin peaks itself to be he wants it to be like this pristine wilderness that people can come oh, and visit and also commodify and hold in their hands and he wants girls who work in his brothel to be untouched teenagers right who are the same age as his own daughter, right? But also be like really sexy and um, knowledgeable and kind of unhurtable because of that. Yeah, yeah, and then it that just becomes a destruction of innocence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rather than a resolution, right? Exactly. That brings them together mm -hmm. uh, because you know maybe they can't be. I, I don't know. Um, are only only at a certain age as a child could they be to, together? Um, but yeah, it's a really wonderful scene. Yeah. So, yeah. So Ben needs an alibi. Yep. The only person that can provide it is Catherine. Uh-huh. Who, he, at first, he assumes that she is dead. Yeah, but he also knows that uh, he doesn't put it past Catherine to, like, get gone and disappear if she wants to. Yeah. And then later he found he finds out that she is alive mm -hmm. because Pete comes and plays a tape. And I love that it's Pete that does it and that Pete and Catherine apparently, at least now, have that relationship yeah. where he'll be her wingman and taunt her lover that she was cheating on him with. <laughs> yeah. It's uh I really feel like we're learning all kinds of things about the Pete and Catherine relationship, which seems so um, one note and toxic in season one. Yeah, well, they were kind of almost estranged, mm -hmm. even though they lived together. But, right. Um, now it's like he remembers that he loves her for being conniving. Yeah, right. Uh, and he, yeah, he just takes pleasure in it. He says she's a caution. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. And uh, so I don't know. I don't know if this is just him, if it's just vicarious, or maybe he also is sort of mad at Ben for trying to get one over on them and destroy the mill. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of it. But he's gleeful. Mm -hmm. uh, 
laughing uh, about it. Right. <laughs> because they, they, now they have been in a vice. Mm-hmm. He needs to sign over and it goes for the States. Right. Also the mill, although I don't know what the point of that is. Yeah. Like, Cause the mill is destroyed. Right. Um, but I think the land that the mill is on is still valuable. I thought that was going to be Ghostwood. Yeah. So I don't know why they right. distinguish between them at this point. But anyway, uh, it's not that important. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, next we see that they bring in uh, Mike to look at Ben. To yes. look over Ben. Yeah. To, yeah. To sniff him like mm-hmm. a truffle pig. Yes. Or, or a drug-smelling dog. Yes. And he says, this isn't Bob. Mm-hmm. I've got the wrong man. Yeah. Bob was close. Mm-hmm. But no cigar. Yeah. And this is a problem because Cooper has never lost his, he's never lost his trust in Mike as no. a seer. In fact, he's, <laughs> he uh, has this little Rod Serling mm-hmm. mini monologue that he gives. Yeah, that's amazing. In another time, another culture, he may have been a seer, a shaman priest. In our world, he's a shoe salesman and lives among the shadows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, this is interesting because uh, Truman steps in and says, no more mumbo jumbo. Mm-hmm. We ha- the, the evidence all points to Ben. Yeah. So we're going with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Cooper. I'm not sure how much evidence does point to Ben. There's the diary right? where it says that uh, she's going to tell the world about Ben Horn. The right, fact that and Laura the fact that she's... And that we know that she had some kind of affair with Ben there. Which he basically admits. And that yes. she said the man who was abusing her was a friend of her father's. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, that's why in... Uh, in our last episode, I think we said that maybe we can't really blame Cooper too much at this point. Sure. But here he kind of gives way to Truman. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to interpret this exactly. Yeah. Um, my first thought was he's, he's uh, this is another error. Mm-hmm. It's another example of him, of Cooper trusting Truman too much and valuing yeah, their relationship absolutely. over the truth. And valuing his idea of Truman as the upstanding small town Western sheriff who, you know, knows right and wrong and yes. has a kind of preternatural insight into things, which he does not. Yes. Um, but at the end or near the end of the episode, mm-hmm. when Cooper is uh, talking into his recorder, it's clear that he, he knows that they have found I mean, I don't, maybe it's not clear. Yeah. He, he talks about like getting closer to the truth. Yeah. Which seems to imply that he realizes that it wasn't Ben Horn. Right. Or that there's some element that's missing. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's mm-hmm. a better way to put it. Yeah. So it, it could be that he just realizes that there is, that he needs some other piece of evidence mm-hmm. before he can rule out Ben. Yeah. And so he's, and also because he has this intuition about dealing with people that he's, he knows that it would be better to not fight Truman over this. Right. Yeah. I think that's part of it. 
Truman, because he's so abrupt mm -hmm. when he says, you know what, you're absolutely right. And Truman even seems kind of surprised right. that he rolled over that easy. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and also the, the bad thing that has already happened mm -hmm. from them, like there's nothing else. It's not like Cooper actually misses anything mm -hmm. by not going toe to toe with Truman in this moment. Sure. Uh, so I don't know. He... I, it, I think there's a lot of ways to read it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. But at any rate, he knows that there's something else. Yeah, he knows something's missing. And, but he, he doesn't really have anything, anything firm mm -hmm. to put his finger on. Right. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, it, you'd think that he would, it's almost like they were setting it up to, for him to immediately figure it out. Yeah. Because he was so... There was something about Leland that was off, mm -hmm. and then he learns that it from Mike that it that Ben isn't Bob, but Bob was close. Mm -hmm. It kind of seems like a master detective should have put the pieces together at this point. Yeah, I know we said that a lot. Yeah, I know. But I guess that's also one of the difficulties of TV writing. Is right, they gotta stretch it out, but yeah. We can talk about that in the next episode, which is where he does finally put it together with yeah. some pretty serious help. But yes, um, and uh, there there was one other thing in this episode that seemed a bit sloppy to me, mm -hmm. which is that uh, that Philip Gerard gets away. Yeah, and then they and then they immediately catch him. Right. <laughs> yeah. Why did that need to happen? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it kind of the then I guess that gives uh, true that gives them a reason to have to leave Leland. Yeah, to get the call, uh -huh. but it's it's a bit strange. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a it's a nice scene that we get where Gerard gets away. Yeah, it's it's nicely filmed mm -hmm. um, with this bright light from the windows. For sure. But when I thought a little more about it, I was like, well, why? <laughs> he gets away and then they catch him. And there's not really a lot of trauma in that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. He gets away. He's supposed to be looking like, I don't know why he is even trying to get away. He's scared. He's scared. And I think that that's maybe important to know is that he, Philip Gerard and Mike are both scared of Bob and they both know that Bob is as of yet not contained. Mm -hmm. um, and that's important for Cooper to know, even though we can already tell because we know that Bob isn't Ben. Bob is yeah. Leland. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's important for Cooper's unease with what they've done so far to realize how frightened Philip Gerard is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Audrey and Cooper. Uh, yeah. Uh, we didn't see much of Audrey in the last episode. No, and it's... Um, and I actually, feel, not, I, not much in this episode in either. That, no, because I feel like this is the point where the show, even before it really goes off the rails, um, has lost its idea of what to do with her. Well, I, I'm going to disagree a little bit okay. because I think that this scene points the way to what to do with her, but then they don't follow up on it. Yeah, that's fair. Because 
their chemistry in this scene it's is so just good. smoldering. It's yeah, it's a really amazing. And uh, you remember after after this scene, I said, <laughs> yeah, like they they these characters should have fucked. Yeah, honestly, I'm sorry. honestly, I, I, I know that it's not a really appropriate, but no, but they're the actors are both adults, right? And also, it, it you could kind of make it work. I thought in a way, like when she first gets in his bed way mm-hmm. back in season one, yeah, it doesn't feel right at all. No, no, I think it was absolutely appropriate that he shut that down. But there's something about the way, um, I mean, Sherilyn, Sherilyn Finn is, is really great here. Mm-hmm. She's playing Audrey as someone who's gone through something yes. and is now more mature because of it. Yes. And she's not vamping as much. She's, mm-hmm. um, yeah, she's, there's maybe a sense that she's grown up a bit. Yeah. Um, and that she maybe sees her, the world more clearly. And that maybe her relate like she's no longer that she no longer needs Cooper as a father figure. Mm-hmm. And maybe they their relationship could have like a more mature basis if they were to have one. Sure. Which again in real life would not be appropriate. Yes. Don't date high schoolers. In this in this story, um, I think that that just because of the way they did it, mm-hmm. that would have to be the next step. Yeah. But they didn't go there. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it needed to happen in the next episode. There could be no build up to it, obviously. Like, there could be a little more hand wringing about. Yeah. Right. And I think there's like, there's a lot of stuff to explore about how, even though Audrey doesn't see Cooper as a father figure anymore necessarily, she still sees him as like an aspirational figure. And I think that's kind of one of the more interesting things about that relationship is that she does want to become him as much as she wants to have sex with him. Yeah. They should have developed her a little more uh, so that she would be confident in her own thing, which I guess yeah. they try to do by having her go to her father's business, but that didn't make any sense considering. Right. I mean, like of all, of, of all of the teen detectives on the show, you know, she and uh, Donna and James and Maddie, um, Audrey is absolutely the most convincing yeah. as the kind of person and personality that could actually do that for real. Um, yeah, like she, okay. Here, there, there are a lot of places to take that character. Right, like she could have started to do ride-alongs with the sheriff's department. Sure. And like with Andy or something mm-hmm. to, and do like little side missions Yeah, where she is very valuable in like is it helping to solve mysteries on her own. Yeah. And then that puts her as more like not someone who is dependent on Cooper, but is mm-hmm. more like his equal or a burgeoning equal. Yeah. And then at the same time, there's maybe a will they won't they. Sure. Which I think as long as you don't string that out too long is good TV. Yeah, absolutely. Uh will they won't they? Ah, uh, she's so young, whatever. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, she is like getting older, graduating, yeah, being her own woman, mm-hmm. and then it's more appropriate. Yeah. Somewhat. Yeah. Right, somewhat. Mm. I don't know. I just think that, that it seemed to me in this last scene that that was where they had to go. And yeah. The fact that no, they didn't go there kind of blows a hole in the in the show, in the show I think. Mm-hmm. I agree. Because uh, it's, it's a wonderful scene where they have chemistry and mm-hmm. she wants to know that her information helped. Yeah. So it wasn't for nothing. Right. And she wants uh, Cooper to know that she's untouched. Uh-huh. Very important. Yeah. And he's like, you don't have to tell me that. <laughs> but he's also, it's because of how Kyle McLaughlin is 
playing it. Mm-hmm. When in the first season, when she was in his bed, yeah, he played it as like and it's still like chemistry, but he was more like, no, you know, yeah. like this is not appropriate. Mm-hmm. But here, he is playing it like he's really into her. Oh, absolutely. And they're kind of interrupted because mm-hmm. um, he's sort of saying, "You don't have to tell me." And he's trying to like be, you know. To make it keep it professional, but yeah. the way he's looking at her, yeah, yeah, it's like no. Uh, so yeah, then they get the phone call and mm-hmm. it's that they found Maddie's body, right. and the last scene is beautifully filmed with the the red lights. Yes, wrapped in plastic yeah. by the water once again. Yep, uh, which also makes it seem like Bob is being reckless. Like, mm-hmm. be that hard after one one of your corpses was discovered to like do a better job of hiding it well right and that sort of brings up the question again does he want Leland to be caught yeah could be yeah uh, because it wouldn't be too difficult to figure out that Maddie was killed after um, Ben was arrested yeah all right so I think that we hit most of the major plot points yeah but uh, there are some of the <clears throat> the minor scenes that we want to talk about. Sure. Uh, so there's uh, we follow up with Norma mm-hmm. and uh, Hank. Yes. And her mom. Her mom is a piece of work. Yep. Yeah. So there's kind of two <clears throat> two storylines here that Hank has been missing. Mm-hmm. He just went AWOL for two days. Yeah, I kind of get the sense that maybe before his jail sentence, he <clears throat> did that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, now he's back and he's sweet talking her and saying that basically says that before, you know, back that there was someone that wanted to kill him because mm-hmm. of things he did before he went straight. So he had to lay low for a little bit. Yeah. And Peggy Lipton plays Norma's scenes with Hank in a really interesting way in that Norma never really seems to actually fall for Hank's bullshit in a real sense in that I don't think she ever believes anything that he says. Right. But she still goes along with it anyway. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very interesting because it's, Norma is a very reserved and contained character. She doesn't really do great big, um, feats of emoting, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's a little hard to tell why she's doing what she's doing. Yeah, I agree. Um, and that's not a knock on Peggy Lipton's performance at all, which I think is good. I think that's just the kind of person Norma is. But it it means like is norma afraid of hank yeah i kind of thought she was afraid of him when he first came back and i still kind of think that but i think there's also an element where norma just thinks well i can't get rid of this guy i don't have any other options because ed won't leave his wife yeah so i guess i'm just gonna live with this and maybe there's a sense that he is at least pretending and like trying to like right that he maybe before he wasn't even like pretending mm-hmm. but now if he is it, like as long as he is not like actively hurting her yeah and is like actually because it seems like other than disappearing he is helping her out yeah in the house trying to be the good guy right that maybe it's... she's like well 
let's just make this work for now. It's um it's interesting to place her alongside Shelley, who in some ways is in a similar situation when married to Leo, but obviously much more physically precarious because <clears throat> Leo, uh, yeah. Leo was um physically violent. Yeah. Um but I sort of get the feeling that Norma is what Shelley could turn into if she stayed with Leo and Leo stayed the same um, into middle age. But maybe yeah. like a lot of sociopaths calm down a little bit, which right. they, which does happen. They, you know, it not, it's not that they become better people. They just become less impulsive and less violent. Yeah. And um it's very possible that somebody in a marriage like that, that had been so bad when it gets just a little better. So he's not violent anymore. She might think, well, I can live with this. Yeah. 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 Cause it's not as bad as it, it used is. to be. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I'm not even sure. We don't necessarily know that Hank was abusing her, but sure. she did seem more afraid of him. Mm -hmm. So either actual abuse or just the threat of, the threat, of, the threat of violence coupled with knowing what he's capable of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and now he's, yeah, he's not like trying, he's taking a different tack with her. He's not threatening her. He's just lying to her, mm -hmm. but pretending like everything is okay and that yeah. he's a good guy. Right. And that he's learned. <clears throat> yeah, that he's learned his lesson. Um, and her... Norma's mom has fallen in with a similar guy that mm -hmm. Hank knew in prison. Right. So there's a scene where Hank is threatening to blow his cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, I don't know if this goes anywhere. Yeah, I, I mean, it. I think it does later. It's sort of interesting to see the difference between Norma and her mother, who seems like a relatively cosmopolitan person. Mm -hmm. Um as opposed to Norma, who runs a diner in a small town. Um, yeah, there's a story there. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like her mom looks down on her. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe thinks she never lived up to her potential. Sure. Because I think, like, there's that element of Norma that you sort of get the sense that maybe she could have done something else. Yeah. She, she could have left Twin Peaks and made something of herself, just never did. Yeah, well, maybe because she fell in with Hank. I don't maybe, know. maybe. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's enough said about that storyline. Yeah, for now. Uh, it, it's not one of the more interesting things that's going on in Twin Peaks at no, this moment. No, not at the moment. But I, I thought it was all well acted and well mm -hmm. done, and I didn't have a problem with any of it. No. Uh, I'd say the same about the one scene with Bobby and Shelly. Yeah. Uh, where we're just... We're not really moving that forward too much, but Bobby has the cassette tape and he hears what's on it. And we learned that Leo was a little bit smarter than maybe we gave him credit for because he realized he needed some kind of leverage over Ben Horn. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, well, right. It's like he must have known that he, that Ben would want to tie up loose ends. So he had this Absolutely. Tape as leverage and mm -hmm. yet he wasn't smart enough to actually get out of getting shot yeah right like, shot anyway. <laughs> he so. was smart enough to know that he might need it but not smart enough to actually use it effectively yeah he didn't get a chance to use it i guess mm -hmm. uh so now bobby has it and he wants to blackmail ben yeah and yet another well thought out scheme mm -hmm. so and i don't even remember what happens with this does 
uh, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, yeah, we will. Um, and and yeah, we see Shelly, and she's tired of taking care of Leo. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it kind of spells out like how unpleasant the situation actually is. Right. She's like, yeah, she has to change him. Right. She has to feed him. She she's, has. It's like having a baby. Yeah, she's covered in food. Worse. Right. Yeah. A baby that used to abuse you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's no good. Yeah. Um, and then let's see. We have a moment between Pete and Sheriff Truman. Yes. Where they watch a bird. And then uh, <laughs> they commiserate over their love uh, of. Complicated, dangerous women. Yeah, Josie. Mm-hmm. And also they put together that something is up because. Yeah. She said that the same guy was her cousin and her assistant. Yep. Yeah. And they realize that something's wrong, but it doesn't really do anything. Uh, it doesn't move the plot forward because there's nothing they can do. She's just gone. Yeah, exactly. But I, I guess yeah. it's laying some groundwork for later scenes. Yeah. Um, but we, we, the audience already knew. Mm-hmm. So it's not telling us any more information than what we knew, but right. Truman and Peter are figuring it out. Yeah. Very slowly. Is, is pretty, yeah. Makes sense given <laughs> what we know about these characters. <laughs> Who do you think is smarter, Truman or Pete? Pete. Oh, for sure. I think Pete is at least self-aware enough to know why he loves the woman that he loves and what she actually is. Well, Pete never Mm. tries to do any schemes on his own. No. Yeah, that's true, too. He's smart enough to know he's not smart. Yeah. Whereas Sheriff Truman is a dumb guy who thinks he's smart. Sheriff Truman thinks that he is saving poor damaged Josie. Yes. And that the problem is that she just won't accept the help that she needs from him. Yeah. Whereas Pete realizes that he is absolutely mentally outclassed yeah, exactly. by the woman that he's in love with and yeah. he just has to like be along for the ride. And Truman doesn't realize how much smarter Josie is than him and yeah. how she's she's just out of his league in terms of um running her own life mm-hmm. yeah which is not to say that she doesn't have plenty of problems that she needs help with but um yeah. he, he he has only the slightest idea of what's going on with her right uh let's see we got andy and lucy um and lucy's sister yeah she's good good casting who was it are you just think the actor is good? I, I think, yeah. Oh, I, like for, the, I forget the actress's the, uh, name, they although look, I've they seen look her. Alike. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But that's also like costuming and hairstyling too. Yeah. I mean, I got to say that this episode was a lot stronger than I remembered. Mm-hmm. I always liked it, but yeah. um, I, I remembered being more annoyed by some of these mm-hmm. B and C plots. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, than I am this time around. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind it. I did think no. that this was, these scenes were where the storyline was starting to drag a little bit. Oh, sure. Uh, but there wasn't that much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's still pushing it along because, uh, you know, uh, because Andy fi- found out that his sperms are good. Yes. They're a whole damn town. And yeah. now he's giving that information to Lucy. Mm-hmm. And now she's... Uh, she has this uh, conflict because uh, I guess 
because she doesn't know who the father is now. She assumed yeah. that even though she liked Annie better, Dick Tremaine was the father, and mm-hmm. maybe that maybe she should try to make that work. Mm-hmm. Um, even though obviously Dick Tremaine is is a douchebag, right? Uh, but now it's more of a conflict. Although now it's, it seems like okay, if Annie could be the father, maybe just go with that. Like say he's yeah. the father, right? Um, so that's the problem. Is they're 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 going to have to draw it out even further. Yeah, they're drawing out something which, purely on a character level, as far as we know, these people would be a pretty easy decision. Exactly. I mean, you I know, guess and Andy know. is the one that she loves and that she thinks is a good person. Yeah. Um. So get with Andy. It doesn't matter whose sperm it was. Yeah. Like I'm trying to understand her her reasoning or her motivations. Mm-hmm. It's maybe she just wanted to be mad at Andy to make it simpler. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, and maybe she's also projecting some guilt that she yeah. cheated on, or I don't know what exactly. It's, it's, I don't think she really cheated on <clears throat> yeah. him. I think she dated Andy and they kind of had a break and then she dated Dick right. Um Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, but I think that these scenes were fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the sister was a bit much. Yeah, and it's absolutely. It's kind of like a a cheap sitcom gag that I don't like, which is to make a character really annoying and mm-hmm. then have the punchline be the other characters are annoyed. So right. like, shut up. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, okay, but you also made. I was also like, my annoyance at this character was not worth the other characters telling her to shut up. Right. Like, how about just not have an annoying character? I don't know. Yeah, and I think like the. It's also a sitcom cliche to have a character who is sort of distinctively wacky in the way that Lucy is. And then when she has a relative, make that person be just like her, but more. Yeah. Um, And I think it's a much more entertaining dynamic to have something like Ben and Jerry, where part of what makes them fun to watch is that they are different. Yes. But they're also... Uh, believable as people who were raised in the same home. Like they're often weird in similar ways um, yeah. while being very different people. Um, yeah. And I'm not yeah. sure what the, what this character of the sister, like what is her character trait that she talks a lot and says inappropriate things? I yeah. Guess. Right. Um, it's not much of a character really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so I don't know. I did like the moment between the sister and Hawk. Yeah. Because she... she... What does she say? You must hate us white people. <laughs> <laughs> well, first she she gets his name wrong. She said... Yeah. I forget. She thinks his name is Eagle Eye or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, she says, you must hate us white people. Mm-hmm. And he says, some of my best friends are white, which is <laughs> right. the obvious joke, but... Very funny uh-huh. and perfectly delivered. Yeah. Uh, by Michael Horse. Mm-hmm. So even though it was the obvious joke, I loved it. Uh, and then also because he follows it up by giving her a stare. I know. <laughs> like, which I think must have been the actor's choice. Mm-hmm. Is, or at any rate, it's not in the script. Yeah. Like he could have said that lightheartedly. Like, oh, some of my best friends are white, white people. Mm-hmm. That's like uh, another sitcom joke. Right. But he gives her a stare like, eh, but you're not one of them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, it's an interesting moment because they, we've talked about this, like 
the show, uh, it, it never really, um, it's not clear what the show's attitude towards Native American people is. Mm-hmm. There's sort of hackneyed elements of na- like the sp- the spookiness is Native American mythology or something. Yeah, and like Hawk has a you know special understanding of tracking in the forest. Yeah, and, right. Um, but I think there are a lot of moments where that's undercut. Yes, sometimes with the writing and mostly through Michael Horse's performance. Yes. Yeah. Like he, that moment um, much earlier when, not in this episode, in an earlier one where he shares like a bit of what sounds like folk wisdom. And then right. he says that it was a poem he wrote for his girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> right. Who was who's a, a professor at Brandeis or something. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't, you know, I think it's fine. And so it's interesting that the show is sort of playing in the sandbox without really, mm-hmm. maybe it's a little re- reckless on their part. Yeah. You know, like they, it's a Western, he's the Native American, mm-hmm. but he's on the side of law enforcement. Yeah. Um, which I guess is a kind of subversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, oh no, he's, he's a Native American, but he's not one of the bad guys. <laughs> so that's, yeah. but then that's also problematic. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't think the show is especially problematic. I don't want to go that far, but it's interesting then that they have this scene where they kind of uh, highlight it a little bit. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's the native American guy. Yeah. Uh, and um, what's interesting is that it's the, the person who gets criticized is is not it's not from the right there's no one mm-hmm. in twin peaks that has like a uh that doesn't like hawk because he's a native american yeah there's no like um explicit anti-native racism right. like where i don't know um somebody says oh you can't have hawk on the force because they're all drunks or something like that right um there's there's nothing really ugly like that it's 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 condescending liberalism yeah it's uh critiquing this liberalism of mm-hmm. like uh wanting to yeah. be yeah like trying to be good and woke yeah but making it all about how he's different mm-hmm. and wanting and, him to fulfill a certain role right. because of his identity it presuming to know what he feels mm-hmm. yeah which is also why, yeah, like I don't want necessarily want to say that this show um, is like racist against Native Americans, partially because uh, Michael Horse chose the role and yeah. probably had limited options, but also, you know, he's always at like fan. Yeah, no, it's panels. it's very clear that it's he's proud of being a part of the yeah. show and um this character is one that means a lot to him yeah. and um he, you know he gives it his all like he's it, he gives a great performance in the first two seasons and in the third especially he's yeah. wonderful and it's also clear that lynch and frost especially in season three know how good he is and know that they can really trust him with a lot of meaty stuff right yeah so he's you know, Michael Horse is an individual who mm-hmm. has his own feelings about yeah. this role. Mm-hmm. And Hawk, as a character, is an individual yeah. uh, who has his own reasons, his own life story that we don't know that much about. But that led him to become mm-hmm. sheriff's know, deputy. Sheriff's deputy. And uh, that he doesn't feel like his life revolves around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess in a way, maybe you could 
say that Hawk doesn't say, no, I don't have any conflict. Mm -hmm. I think that that's important. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't say like, you're entirely wrong. I have no conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, He leaves it a bit ambiguous. Yeah. Uh, But it does seem like basically you can tell he's just annoyed at this person. Yeah. um, For kind of being presumptuous Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. Yeah. And some of my best friends are white people, you know, like it mean a lot of things. <laughs> um, I think he's aware that there is, yeah. I, I would like to read it as he's a character that, you know, has this in his mind that mm-hmm. there is this difference yeah, sure. of backgrounds mm-hmm. and that it may, his life maybe wasn't free of animus mm-hmm. and, and conflict over that. Right. But he doesn't really see, it's like he's he's happy where he is with the choices he's made. Mm-hmm. And he's mostly just irritated that this white woman is like... Treating him like a zoo animal. Yeah, like only sees him and immediately thinks of him in those terms. Yeah, sure. And presumes to know what he feels about it. Right, and well, it's um, it's kind of a strangely aggressive move to make um, for a white person to say to a person of color in this instance, a native American person and saying, Oh, wow, you must hate white people. It's, it's doing that in order to neutralize it. Like it's, it's bringing up the specter of conflict so that now the person of color has the responsibility to say, Oh no, no, no. Oh no. I love white people. You're great. Yeah, or like, like signaling that I'm not one of the... Like, yeah. But I think even... I think that's right. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even if she had like... You know, if this were... If this were uh, if this scene were done now, then mm-hmm. she would be like, oh, I just read White Fragility. And, sure. Uh, you know, can I Venmo you some cash? Like, yeah. <laughs> even if she had been... In, even if... I think you're right that it was subtly saying, like, don't be mad at me. Uh-huh. But I think even if she had taken it a step further and been like... Oh, you should de- like please insult me mm-hmm. <laughs> for being white. Yeah, uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it would still be annoying. Well, no, because like that's that's what this kind of um, liberal white person um, performance is really about. It's it's about um, it's about the performance of weakness in order to reify power. Right. It's it's about saying, oh, I'm so bad. I'm I'm one of the bad race. I'm so guilty. I feel so bad here. Um, let me tell you, I feel terrible about the white what the white people have done in order to assuage their own guilt and to make it the job of the person of color to then say, no, no, you're good. It's fine. You're fine. You're wonderful. Yeah. Um, and none of that actually changes the disparity. social dynamics or like the material reality of anything. It just once again puts your feeling that as a white person at the center of everything. Yeah, like you know, if if it bothers you that much, uh, I don't know, make a donation and shut up. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, or or you could be like, oh, this guy's different. Uh, but I'll take him as an individual and treat him like a person. Mm-hmm. And maybe, uh, you know, maybe we'll head it off and then we'll yeah. be friends and he can like in, tell me about his experience in a, like a natural organic way. Yeah. 
and that will be a learning experience for me, but mm -hmm. it won't be this schematized, like I must, you know, uh, I must perform my ritual of, um, right. repentance so that I can check it off on a list and not worry about it anymore. Right. Or like you, uh, he needs to tell me how to like how, what I'm supposed to feel or, yeah. uh, I must immediately know his bet. Like, mm -hmm. it's like this idea that you have to listen and, mm -hmm. uh, to other people from different backgrounds, but it's like not in the context of an actual relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so it's like, instead of just being a person and then maybe they'll be friends or maybe they won't be probably not, but yeah, it's more like we have to immediate, like this interaction has to be politicized and has to fit into a schema. Well, and it's also a very liberal white American approach to um, the conflicts that come from identity um, or marginalization in this country in that I think those people can often realize that there is a problem, but what they think is actually at stake is the state of the white soul. Yeah. So like the issue is not, you know, giving land back or um, making sure that people on reservations have schools to go to and clean water and medicine and hospitals and post offices and the ability to vote and enough food to eat. Um, the issue is I feel really bad about myself because I benefit from racism. So how do I fix that feeling? Yeah. And that's always the primary goal is fixing the bad feeling that I have rather than actually fixing the problem. And if fixing yeah. the problem is a way to fix that bad feeling, awesome. But yeah, the goal is always fixing the bad feeling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's almost like this, we're not saying anything that hasn't been said a thousand times, oh, but it's, sure. it's almost like this Calvinist mm -hmm. uh, introspection. Yeah. And like, am I the, Am I the elect or not? Right. Um, right. Soul searching mm -hmm. and, and making sure you have the right uh, opinions. Um, and but I do think also like there is a strand of activism that kind of invites this by focusing so much on uh, you know having just the right opinions and the right understanding and they're saying the right words. Right. Well, because it's for people who think that racism is a, is purely a matter of interpersonal conflict and discomfort rather than um, systemic material realities. Yeah. It, well, and because there's, you know, it's so we don't have, uh, there's no, um, there's no actual levers that we have anymore to like affect change. So no. uh, it's like all we have left is, is words and symbolism. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if we had like a lot of this stuff would have to just get hashed out in actual uh, organization yeah. and actual people of different backgrounds coming together for a common cause. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it'll, it'll be a conflict, but it, gets worked out on the level of practicality. Yeah, yeah. Rather than trying to uh, preemptively work it all out and then come together, which mm -hmm. is never gonna happen. Right. Because you can do, everyone can re read White Fragility, but then when they all come together to get do something, all those, all that stuff will still be there. Yeah. It has to be worked out in practice. Right. Um, There's the base and then the superstructure. <laughs> read uh, your marks. Yeah, but also that's just, that's also human nature. It's oh, no, like, I know you have to form relationships with people yeah. to uh, 
everything, you know, it's not, it's all going to be surface, surface level until you have actual relationships yes. or, or even it doesn't have to be a friendship. It can be like, yeah, like uh, a common cause mm-hmm. and, and then stuff gets worked out. And then also like, not only does some stuff get worked out, but some stuff doesn't still, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter as much. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter if the guy is not using quite the right language because he's older or whatever. Right. If he is hard as in the right place and you can like, come together and get something done mm-hmm. then you're you're not going to be we're not going to be quite as touchy about it i think well we're not going to be quite as touchy about it and also like if he spends more time with people because right. they are working for a common cause he'll start to get better about that stuff probably because yeah. that's what people do and to be clear i'm not talking about like hardcore nazis oh, no, or, of course or whatever not. but i'm just saying like uh to a certain extent the there's a kind of uh, the discourse is all, tends to focus on uh, on, the, on an abstract level, yeah. And like once it's at the practical level, then I think that's how it has to be worked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at any rate, like for this, in the coming back to the episode, like the sister is not having an organic Gwen, human. That's her name. Gwen is not having an organic human response and interaction with hawk and that's Mm -hmm. the problem yeah um and any anything any guilt that she has or desire to help would have to be in the context of uh yeah being an authentic person and not Mm -hmm. not reducing other people yeah to it's like being cognizant of the issues without see uh, while still being being able to see hawk as something more than his skin color yeah right right anyway (laughs) (laughs) no it's uh i'm glad we figured that out yep there's no further discussion is needed no no yeah the only other thing i want to mention because it's funny is andy fainting when he sees lucy with gwen's baby (laughs) because it's just like perfect andy she goes away for a couple days with a completely flat stomach and then shows up with a eight month old baby <laughs> and Andy thinks it's his baby. Um, yeah. Well, once again, we asked the question exactly how stupid is Andy? <laughs> He's pure of heart. Is he? And empty of head. Is he, how does he feed himself? <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe that's why Lucy broke up with him in the first place. <laughs> like, can he even consent to sex? <laughs> right. Uh, but it's fine it's it's a comedy but that's okay yeah that's what i like about this show is like it's it packs in different kinds of uh, Mm -hmm. of tones right and and ways of treating characters it's Mm -hmm. there's soapy bits there's sitcomy bits some of it's more realistic some of it's like horror um and uh yeah so (laughs) andy I, i guess you could read it as also maybe he's just so anxious about the baby being his that mm-hmm. as soon as he sees her with a baby he faints right right uh but it's very sweet mm-hmm. yeah we like andy this is a pro andy podcast on the whole yeah absolutely yeah yeah all right well i think that's it great so uh we've got another great episode of the tv show coming up in a couple of weeks it'll be our goodbye to the great great ray wise But uh, he has a hell of a send-off, so we look forward to talking about it.
Oh, you know, I did just think of something else. The title of this episode yeah. is terrible. What's the title again? Uh, I think it's something like Drive with a Dead Girl. Oh, yeah, it is Drive with a Dead Girl. Which is too bad because the German titles that got translated into English are actually usually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one is just someone was uh, phoning it in. Yeah, they, it's, it's a little bit like a schlocky horror yes. movie. Whereas this is usually much more elevated A24 style horror. Exactly. Yeah. But I thought of it because I was thinking of the title of the next episode, which mm-hmm. is Arbitrary Law. Yeah. Which is a great title. It's a, yeah, it's a fantastic I don't know what it title. means. Well, we can talk about that. We can that. talk about it. But I'm looking forward to it. And then then, then there will be a dive in quality. And yes. this TV show, hopefully not in the podcast. No, no, definitely not in the podcast. Right. Right. All right. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye. Stay classy. Will I take you out tonight with me? Honey, here's the way it's gonna be. You will see behind a team of snow-white horses in the slickest gig you ever see. Chicks and ducks and geeks better skirt when I take you out in the surrey. When I take you out in the surrey with a fringe on top, watch that fringe and see how it flutters. When I drive them high-stepping strutters, nosy pokes all peek through the shutters and their eyes will pop. The wheels are yellow, the upholstery's brown, the dashboard's genuine leather. With eyes and glass curtains, you can roll right down in case there's a change in the weather. Two broadside lights winking and blinking. Ain't no finer rig I'm a thinking. You can keep your rig if you're thinking that I can't swap for that shiny little sorry with a fringe on the top. Would you say the fringe was made of silk? Oh, wouldn't have no other kind but silk. Has it really got a team of snow-white horses? One's like snow, the other's more like milk. All the world will fly in a flurry when I take you out in the surrey. Take you out in the surrey with a fringe on top. When we hit that road, help a leather child. Cats and dogs will dance in the heather. Birds and frogs will sing all together. And the toads will pop. The wind will whistle as we rattle along. Cows will move in the clover. The river will ripple out a whispered song. Whisper it over and over. Don't you wish you'd go on forever? Don't you wish you'd go on forever? Don't you wish you'd go on forever? And it never stop in that shiny little story with a fringe on the top. It sure feel like a queen sitting up in that carriage. Only she talked so mean to me a while back, Aunt Eller. I'm a good man not to take it. Kane said I was going. I ain't asked you. Where'd you get such a big ass? Oh, I 
all you know about it. <laughs> Spent all his money hiring a rig, and now he ain't got nobody to ride in it. Oh, I have to. <laughs> and I, I did not hire it. No, look, I made the whole thing up out of my head. What? Made it up? Dashboard and all. <laughs> oh, get off of the place, you. And I'll make him get himself out of here telling me lies. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Look out now. Making up a few purdies in again, no lord, I know of. Don't you wish there was such a rig, though? Hmm? Then you could go to that play party and do a little hold out until the morning if you was a mind to. And then when you was all wore out, I'd lift you up out of that surrey, jump up alongside of you, and you'd just point the horses home. I can just picture the whole thing. I can see the stars getting blurry when we ride back home in the Surrey, riding slowly home in Surrey with a fringe on top. I can feel the day getting older, feel a sleepy expecting to release new episodes of It's Not About the Bunny every two weeks. So if you like what you've heard and you want to keep listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. If you don't like what you're hearing, that's cool, but please, please keep it to yourself. Bye.